Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. Why did that make you laugh? <laughs> what up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley doing his best Brad Pitt impression, because today we're talking a movie from 1991, available currently on HBO Max, a classic, as our mom would describe it, a woman's movie, Thelma and Louise. Welcome to Or Whatever Movie's Brad Pitt Supporting Role Week. Oh, now I get it. You wanted this to be a companion to The Lost City because Brad Pitt has supporting roles. Yep, sexy supporting roles, I might add. (laughs) Does it count as like being connected if we're talking 30 years later? I mean, the what's his name? What's Max Trent? Jack. Jack Trainer. He's just what JD would grow up to be, right? It's so true. It's absolutely. If JD applied himself (laughs) and got into the seals, he would become Jack Trainer, and he would still be objectified 30 years later. Yep. So it's a Fast and the Furious scenario where he's a bad guy and then he gets chased by a cop. And then they become friends, and he contracts the fugitive for a very special mission that's like secret ops or whatever. And then eventually he becomes a good guy and is working with law enforcement. And then he yep. strikes out on his own and becomes like a mercenary for hire. Yeah, like a extraction consultant. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, so now I get the connection. I thought it was some like awakening on your part where you were like let's watch Thelma and Louise nope I like Thelma and Louise every time they talked about Thelma and Louise in interview it would be always be Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis because you got to put the ladies up front this is obviously a movie that women embrace and that the culture embraces as a female-centric movie and then inevitably the interviewers especially for 1991 would be like so let's talk about the guys Brad Pitt how dreamy was he you know And so he always came up in interviews. I think he did in The Lost City, too. But he's also Brad Pitt. Yeah. I don't know that he was Brad Pitt back in the day. Because I got to say, if I watched the interviews for Brad Pitt in 1991, not knowing what I know now, I would have been like, I don't know that this kid is going to be like Brad Pitt. He's kind of doofy. He's not altogether in interviews at this stage different than than JD. He's like, oh, man, you know, I don't know, you know, like, what do you think? And, you know, son of a bitch. And I don't know. He's like a punk kid from, like, Oklahoma. I completed this role with one of his other early roles where he's a stoner on the couch. What movie is yeah, that? Yeah, that's True Romance. So... Okay, because I was waiting for that moment where he's like stoned on the couch and it never came. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, True Romance was Tony Scott, Ridley's little brother, R.I.P. Oh. And director of Top Gun. So I take it you hadn't seen Thelma and Louise in a while. It's been a while. I'm going to go on record and say it's Ridley Scott's second best movie of all time. And that's saying something. Second to, I'm assuming, Alien? To Alien. And a decided shift in tone. I mean, it's, you know, it's a good 14 years after Alien, but still. I don't, is it that big of a departure? I mean, Ripley is a pretty kick-ass female lead. 
Well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Just tonally, I guess. And maybe not even tonally. Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis talked a lot about, you know, what's it like being in a Ridley Scott movie? And Susan Sarandon can barely hide her contempt. Uh, You know, she respects him greatly as a director, but this is a character-driven movie. But she always said in multiple interviews it was really a Ridley Scott movie first and foremost. For example, the final, the climactic scene on the edge of the cliff, she's like, yeah, we shot all day. They made sure they got the helicopter shot and got the helicopter dailies in and everybody helicopter helicopter and then like 45 minutes before the sunset they were like all right let's do that final scene and they did it in a single take wow she was always like he always had the helicopters in there and lots of trucks and and all that stuff and and uh, that was Ridley Scott's world and then they would probably also shoot some character stuff that day so he really scottified what was otherwise a pretty contained road trip drama Right. Well, it would have been. And the writer, Callie, uh, she had talked about directing it herself at uh, in various stages as a much smaller movie. And Ridley Scott wanted, uh, he's operatic and he wanted it to be grandiose and more epic in a way that he could achieve. He did feel like they kind of used, they used him as bait a little bit, getting him attached. Uh, but uh, he wasn't going to direct it. He was just going to produce it to really get some good financing and get a bigger movie made. And ultimately he got lured in. But if you strip it down to bare essence, how commercially successful would it I'm going to argue that it was a tough sell to do a middle American housewives outsiders kind of small movie it's not exactly commercial at least you can't argue that it wasn't perceived as commercial in like 1990 when it was being made to have two female leads and have all the males kind of play backseat roles you know oh, backseat because it's a car And that A-lister Brad Pitt was in the backseat the whole time, sometimes with Gina Davis. (laughs) But not necessarily an A-lister at that point, kind of more of a ingenue, like next generation Robert Redford kind of a thing. Yep, he gets that a lot. And I can see why. Although, you know, he's already doing the mouth stuff. Yeah, I I think he toned down the mouth, if anything. There's a lot going on in Thelma and Louise, and I want to distinguish what is genre and what is like cinematic or storytelling device. It's a road trip movie. It's a feminist movie. It's a cat and mouse. It's a on the lamb kind of criminal on the run. Like, how would you categorize Thelma and Louise? Well, if did you, I watched the trailer too, and boy, does the trailer make it look like a comedy. It's like all like a road trip kind of buddy comedy, like a ladies movie. They're like, you know, we'll be drinking margaritas by the sea, mamacita, and how do you like the vacation so far? And they're like, woo, and they're like cheering and scarves flying and stuff. <laughs> a bit of a misdirect for a really dark ending. And that ending underwent a lot of scrutiny, and Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis were convinced that they were going to shoot that ending, you know, to placate them and then bring them back six weeks later and shoot the real ending where they all end up in Club Med in Mexico or whatever. But I don't know. uh, This movie, I was only, what, 15 years old when this movie came out, and I don't remember if I saw it in the theater or not, but once Ridley Scott kind of came to the forefront of my mind, I revisited this one a lot, and it is a contemplative, quietly philosophical movie in a way that I think only Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, Ridley Scott could do that might not have been... I think if this movie were made today, it would be like bullshit 20-somethings road tripping to Stagecoach or something, and they get in a little (laughs) bit of trouble on the way. It would be crap. You know, they were older. They were, well, Louise at least was wiser and unfortunately, you know, had a little too much life experience in this area. But there were a lot of adult elements that were 
that made it rise above an action movie or an outlaw caper or a female buddy movie or whatever. You know, that moment where Thelma's like, I feel awake. You know, you feel awake. I'm, my eyes are wide open. Right. And uh, Louise kind of doing that thing where she compares her life and the limited potential of her future with the old ladies sitting in what I presume is a nursing home, you know? She's looking at them. I think it was them. like a cafe or something, but yeah. Yes, she sees herself and then she doesn't want to be that person yet and goes to put on the lipstick and just realizes like that whole idea, her whole mindset has to change. Like it's not about mm-hmm. that she would be lucky to be those people in peace, you know, staring out the window with not a care in the world. I don't know. There was something that made it not a typical action movie. They felt like they were real, normal people who got into extraordinary mm-hmm. circumstances and reacted extraordinarily because they bring, she, Louise, at least brought much from her past. But Thelma is the one who has the biggest arc. Oh, man. Huge transformation for Gina Davis' character, for sure. I think that part of the beauty of this film is what it leaves to our interpretation and then what is actually quite overt, I would argue. So that moment that you described, it was so interesting to hear your interpretation of it. Like I read in that silent exchange between Louise and the women in the coffee shop or the home or whatever that was as like their scrutiny of her in her awakening. And then she wanted to kind of, she felt compelled by habit if by nothing else to kind of conform and then decided no that's those days are done like that's what I read into it and I would disagree that what's happening on a social emotional psychological level is quiet I think it's quite overt like almost in your face but because they're adults and they're experiencing it while we see it unfold it feels less in your face or it's certainly not preachy right they're discovering this these things about themselves as opposed to being told or or telling they're experiencing this awakening like the feminist messaging is really strong it's a great observation uh, it's something that I hadn't considered at least that angle. I, I meant that it was not preachy, like you said, or didactic, and that it was a quietly philosophical movie. It felt like a profound movie, even though they didn't yeah. make soapbox kind of statements. There were multiple, like two pages, Susan Sarandon said, of, of exchange uh, that they interspersed throughout the rest of the movie while they're sitting on the cliff before they drive over. And it was reduced to, let's not get caught. What do you mean? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go. Are you sure? Yeah. And then they do it, you know, as opposed to how what led them there. And, and they didn't have to say as much, maybe, as the screenplay probably encouraged them to say, which made it adult and contemplative in a way that the trailers don't belie. When they promoted it, they didn't want the moment where Louise gets out of the car to stare at the stars while Thelma's asleep in the middle of Monument Valley. Yeah, it's interesting to to hear that they had this exchange and that it was ultimately cut. But I don't think they needed the discussion because I think they were already well past the point of no return. And I thought a lot about this because I felt profoundly affected by this viewing of Thelma and Louise, which is kind of silly when you think about this being a commercial piece of entertainment. But I thought a lot about what a point of no return means and when the point of no return happens in this film. And I think it happens way before they're at the edge of the cliff. Oh, yeah. I think from a philosophical point of view, the point of no return is the attempted rape at the bar. 
I mean, this is difficult because this gets into gender dynamics and all that kind of stuff. And the perception of men is not particularly forgiving in this movie. That is if you're asking me for my opinion. I was quietly outraged for Velma and Louise. Now, Harlan, I think, completely deserved to die. He was the worst. Really? But I also wonder, I, I was a little bit frustrated as, look, Louise is traumatized, obviously. And what she did, she did out of spite because he taunted her and tried to kind of to, to strip her of her power. And she reasserted that he power. He showed no remorse. Right. I'm glad that he's dead, which Thelma ultimately came to say. Louise never said as much, but she didn't really have to. She always regretted putting herself in that position and putting her friend in that position. But she, I think, always felt justified in protecting her friend and be needed to be in that position. The frustration comes from the fact that at the time, yeah, Thelma was, she, she had been punched twice in the face. She was obviously distraught. The waitress would have backed them up, presumably. Um, and it was a bad situation where they probably could have gotten away with it, could have gotten out of more serious consequences because while the actual murder wasn't justifiable, they could have played it that way. And as long as they were mm -hmm. going to defy the law and go on the run, they could have fibbed a little bit and said, he was raping me and you had to stop him. That's almost the truth which is what Thelma says. Mm -hmm. And the frustration is you're getting deeper and deeper the longer you're gone. And that they sure. really, it was a turning point, but it didn't have to be. Well, I think this is a good distinction to make. There's the, I guess, legal or practical turning point that probably comes a little bit later in the storyline. I agree. They could have probably justified or explained what they did. Maybe they get a manslaughter rap or something with fairly low sentencing time. But on a psychological level, even if they did get a short prison sentence or something, a minimal punishment, what did Louise and, and Thelma actually have to return to yeah, after true. that point? <laughs> Daryl, man, if there because there were definitely comedic moments in this movie. And Daryl was Christopher McDonald was amazing as Daryl. <laughs> oh, do you, do you know? Right? Like you love to hate him. Oh God. He was so gross. I love the fact that the when he fell outside the car, he's like, I don't need this bullshit in the morning. That was totally unscripted. He ate it on like the building <laughs> supplies and it fits in yeah. so perfectly with his character because while he's successful and while he's, you know, a dominant personality, he's also bumbling and to a total moron. Daryl makes me laugh <laughs> in an unintentional uh, guy. Like of all of the three men, the one who is the most, four men, if you count Jimmy and Brad Pitt and, and uh, what's it, Harvey Keitel, uh, Daryl yeah. is by far the goofiest, dumbest, uh, you know, would be the most aggressive personality who's just a bumbling moron. <laughs> I, I think... But for me, like you're talking philosophically, I don't think it was quite the same, exactly the same time, but I think it's around the time when Louise surrenders the jewelry for the hat, everything that was important because they were all dolled up leaving the house, you know, and had their sunglasses and she's checking herself in the mirror and she has her smart little cowgirl outfit or whatever. And all that yeah. went away with the lipstick and the jewelry and the hat and this was about survival not that that hat helped her in any functional way this wasn't a bad hair movie it was a car hair movie but this was a really bad hat movie for me <laughs> all those hats were terrible 
all the headgear not approving. Yeah. And they were like, we have to find the sweatiest, nastiest hats possible off the pervert dude and off the old guy who's like, what am I going to do with this turquoise jewelry? Who was the pervert dude? The pervert, the trucker dude, which I have to say is an iconic, oh, uh, is an iconic God. like girl power kind of moment. But he is the worst part for me. He is almost incoherent in his Neanderthal manliness. Yeah, I've uh. been saying you too. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, you know, they blow up the truck and it's like, it's the, what you don't do when you're on the lamb. Maybe don't do the truck explosions or whatever, but it's a great like, <laughs> moment for women in film it's or whatever. It's Scott. Yeah, and they're they're like doing donuts around him and scoop up his hat or whatever. Just let's get out of the state as soon as possible, please. But fine, they were making a decided statement, but that one was the most overt and uh, the least effective, in my opinion. Least effective? Really? Well, I mean, it satisfied the trailer requirements for explosions and stuff, I guess, if you were going to go that route. But I don't know that putting that trucker in its place was what Thelma and Louise needed to be focusing their attention on at that particular moment. And that's where the overt feminist tone becomes... It becomes overtone and not undertone. Like this is, it's a side adventure. It's completely beside the point, but they do it because they can. I'm not saying that they should, but man, that guy, as gross and as caricature as he is, he's kind of one of the more real manifestations of, I don't know. Having never been honked at <laughs> and obscenely gestured at by a trucker dude like that. I'm just saying that maybe it was the, maybe it was Oklahoma or whatever. But he was so, it's like, how did that dude get a, co- a commercial driver's license? I don't he know, dude. He was pretty dumb. That's the closest thing to my experience that I have in Thelma and Louise. And it's probably pretty, and it's pretty close. I mean, I haven't, I'm not going to go into Brad Pitt type adventures. Although I did, I did hitchhike from a driver who I found later had a machete in his trunk. Well, that was kind of freaky. But you can't access a machete from the trunk. What's the problem? The problem is you hitchhiking thinking that's a good idea. It wasn't a good idea. We digress. The truck driver, as characterish as he is, is real. I've experienced that. Is it realistic for Thelma to be like, I don't want to touch the gun and like holding it between her thumb and forefinger and putting it in Louise's purse to suddenly be a crack shot and know to shoot the gas tank to make it explode in dramatic fashion? And to like calculate seemingly spontaneously that they're far enough away for this to be safe? In a way, this movie has dude sensibilities, right? Because, yes, we are allowed to get into the heads of two female characters. And I find it very realistic and very compelling to watch those two. I like watching Thelma and Louise a lot. But at the same time, as they get more outlaw-y, they get sexier. And I don't know if that's like, well, they're sexy because they're they're powerful or something like that. But I read somewhere that part of the their transformation, Thelma's wearing JD's shirt after they get robbed. She has it and then she ties it up uh, all cute like. And then uh, when they shoot the trucker's truck, the sleeves are gone. And Louise has like the little handkerchief around her neck, like made from strips of that shirt. And and so they got sexier as they went along, because I think at the end, Hmm. I think Louise is stripped pretty bare, but Thelma's in like full makeup. I don't know about that. I feel like this is just your subjective opinion on what sexy is, like that you prefer kind of more naturalistic, powerful women. Yeah, okay. They weren't trading on their sex appeal necessarily or even on the good timeliness of it, as the trailer would suggest. And I thought this movie's not salacious or not provocative in that way or exploitative in anything. And then I saw it and I was like, 
there's kind of a lot of sex in Thelma and Louise. Or at least maybe that one sex scene felt like a lot of sex. Yeah, there's a sexy sex scene and Thelma doesn't spare objectifying JD. She's like, look at that butt. <laughs> Park a car in the shot of Daryl's ass. <laughs> We're not calling it sexy, obviously. But the rape scene is very like... You know, he's obviously objectifying her and it's graphic in that kind of way, you know, not like graphic nudity or whatever. But sexuality plays a big part in this movie that I didn't necessarily remember as a main point of focus. And maybe it's not. But it's interesting that you're conflating the kind of sexiness of them after the the quote unquote awakenings. It kind of surprised me because honestly, for the other viewings, I didn't remember it as being a sexy kind mm-hmm. of movie. Any of the men that objectify them do so in really gross ways, so it doesn't feel sexy. It feels gross. Um, You know, it's complicated for me, too, because I feel like the male character who most closely, like, understands them, you know, the Harvey Keitel character, he almost desexes them. Or he he doesn't infantilize them, but he constantly refers to them as girls. Right. These girls are going to get hurt. They're just girls. He wants to, like, protect them. Right. He's trying to be empathetic to what it is they're going through. And he's the closest we get to a male character who understands them. And yet he diminishes them. You know what I mean? Maybe he just rolls himself into the paternal kind of protective role and as such feels responsible for their safety. I mean, you know, he never met them. He had conversations where, you know, he's squaring off and trading off with Louise, who doesn't give much by that point. You know, she's like making jokes and kind of mocking him. And he I think it's his idea of these girls. They're okay, you know, and hopes that they're not as dangerous as they potentially can be. Or they're being compelled to be. Which is interesting for a detective or a cop or whatever he is to say, like, do motivations play into law? Does it matter that Thelma commits armed robbery in the the liquor store because they were robbed themselves? I think that his hands were tied a little bit. Someone's got to go to prison, Ben. Harvey Keitel plays much the same character, you know, a dozen years later for National Treasure. He's like the pursuant cop who is stern and yet empathetic, sympathetic. I I do think he was honest. I think that Harvey Keitel was sincere in his desire to stop it as soon as possible, to come in, I want to help you. I don't think that Louise saw it that way, and maybe the viewer wasn't necessarily meant to see it that way, but I do think his intentions were honorable, wanted to mitigate the damage as much as possible. I do believe you, you know, there's nothing that could be done. Uh, Harlan deserved it and all that stuff, and so that made me like him, Especially the fact that he obviously mocked Daryl and uh, was contemptuous of Daryl. That put him in my corner as well. It's all in that look he gives him after the phone call. Every bit of the timing in that editing is so perfect. He's like, hi, Thelma. And then she hangs up and she's like, he knows. And then Harvey Keitel gives him this look, gives Daryl this look that prompts Daryl to be like, what? All I said was hello. And it's that look that's just bitterly mocking him, even though it's very subtle. I mean, maybe it's just what I'm projecting onto it. But I mean, look, if it's if we're getting patriarchal, right, it doesn't work. Now, he doesn't save those girls. He's not the he's not going to be the fatherly guy who is like explaining to the judge on their behalf how they were driven by desperation to commit these crimes. He never gets a chance to speak to them face to face. He's arguably the most logical extension of maleness in their world at that point. 
and the closest he can get is literally in their dust as they accelerate away from him. Well, when you start talking about patriarchy, it's interesting because, yes, I guess kind of paternal, fatherly character in Harvey Keitel. And then there's an e- a male equal or counterpart in the Jimmy character. Obviously, Daryl, I don't know what Daryl represents, but <laughs> I guess he rep- represents a very sad part of the male patriarchy. Yeah, it's the, just the, the power gone mad. He Daryl is the husband version of the cop that's just like... He's it's a he's a Nazi, you know, and he's all condescending. Mm. Maybe it may, is that it? Is that is Harvey Cartel a little bit condescending to them? I, I don't mean that in a bad way. Maybe. He just yeah, he just diminishes them. But I think that there's also a major unseen patriarchal force, if not character, and that is kind of going out on a limb here. But law enforcement, like when Thelma and Louise are driving off into their glorious destiny. <laughs> It's very difficult because you don't want to, like, condone suicide. And I'd like to think that there's always an alternative to suicide. And I don't think that they had a lot of choices. I don't know that they didn't have any other choice. But I don't think they were doing it for that reason. I think they were doing it as a big way to give the bird to a legal system that they knew or at least presumed wouldn't treat them fairly because they're women. Yeah, in in a way, I think that was Hal Slocum's, Harvey Keitel's angle. The idea of, you know, you're just little old gals driven to desperation. I can help you. But at the same time, Louise firmly believed that you can't blow a guy's head off after you've been seen dancing cheek to cheek with him all night. Who's going to believe that? Because she's a woman and her experience in Texas, they were going to be treated more harshly. There was a world of difference between their, their logic. Their justification for what what she did and her logical progression led her to a completely different place. Like being feminine to Louise in the eyes of the patriarchy was her weakness, whereas it seemed like Hal kind of believed, the Harvey Keitel character believed that them being girls would work to their advantage in kind of pleading Mm. their case, which I honestly Mm. have to say I believed as well. I thought, no, you guys are the victims. You can demonstrate that you were the victims, judging by the bruises on Thelma's face and her split lip, which went away right away because they were only on the road for a few days, right? Yeah. She healed up good. four days. The point is their situation is just a um, example of how they are fighting against a system that's intended to protect them, whether it's legal or social, cultural, but that actually doesn't protect them from oppression. I mean, they're surrounded by men. The only time that they're even remotely happy is when they're out on the road away from everyone else. Otherwise, it's blaring truck horns and noisy, dirty truck stops and gas stations and helicopters and other cars and stuff. And I don't know. I I think that a lot of the imagery was deliberate. And, you know, when they're boxed in and the chase scene is harrowing. and, And on the other side, the Top Gun Maverick side of me thinks that I think this movie is beautiful in in the way it was shot and has some of the my favorite imagery for film if i were gonna when when my life of movies flashes before my eyes right before i die hopefully i have time for that thelma and louise is going to be in there when they just race through the roadblock at full speed and clip that cop's rearview mirror off such a beautiful (laughs) shot it's like it's like they're slapping him in the face as they go by and forever in my in my mind that shot of them speeding you know across the field or across the plains and then more and more cops emerge into the frame and there's 10 cop cars behind the what their little thunderbird 
kicking up dust is such a gorgeous image and it's just they're vastly outnumbered and completely surrounded at all times by the oppressors <laughs> i guess if we're going to call them <laughs> but it's such wonderful imagery and they're at their best when they're when it's just them and they're not you know forced into these corners you know it, it doesn't feel like they were very cons people were concerned and the detractors of Thelma and Louise felt that oh it's going to glorify violence and crime and suicide and I didn't feel like that at all. Like I felt like obviously the robbery was played for humor. And just when we have the contemplative moment with Louise, when she's looking at the ladies through the window and they're looking back and that's all broken up when she's like, drive, Louise, drive the car, get out of here. And she just committed the robbery. And, uh, and super powerful imagery. It's all about tone and letting these characters breathe and feel real and take these little moments of contemplation that had transcends it from a outlaw buddy capery kind of movie to something more profound more emotionally affecting i love this movie whether whatever the effect and for better or for worse thelma and louise leaves an impression not only on us but on cinema I'm really glad that you proposed this, even though I was like, random. That's because I choose good movies, or at least movies that are good to talk about. Well, this was a good one to talk about. 30 minutes into this record, I was like, we haven't even scratched the surface of this movie. Yeah, obvious totally for me. I think one of those movies that I'm not expected to like embrace and to really love, but one that I do in spite of like my dudeness. I would say that Gina Davis's transformation is up there if not surpasses Clint Eastwood's in Unforgiven. Man. She's kind of amazingly, powerfully terrifying in her transformation. It's like even more scary when she's like, I got a knack for this. I believe you do. In a way, that you're right. They change roles a little bit because Louise is definitely the more assertive one. And then she kind of like, Thelma. And Thelma's like, what? I can't be on vacation and pounding wild turkey. <laughs> right. And then, of course, when Louise has her breakdown and... Thelma has to kind of take over. <laughs> yeah. Then she gets all Sarah Connor. Move! Louise, come on! All right. So an obvious totally from Wes, a good from Iris. That's our discussion on Thelma and Louise from 1991. Again, available currently on HBO Max. So let us know what you think. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our podcast. Please support us on Patreon. And please follow us on social media at or whatever movies. We can't do this without you, even if you're all the male patriarchy. <laughs> and ride or die. In this case, die. After <laughs> In riding. this case, both. <laughs> ride till you die. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. 
We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Electrocast.